Hey everyone, welcome in to Patterns Tell Stories. I'm your host, Klaus, and today we're going to be talking about Operation Paperclip. With me today, as always, is my co-host, Garrett. How's it going, man? Really good, man. How are you? Doing well. Some interesting things happened this past week, specifically the new TTS Talks episode with Tom DeLong. This first episode that came out, probably within a year, uh, they haven't done one. So it was great to see this again. I guess Tom's on a break between uh, legs of his tour. So I guess he was able to sit down with Jim and hash out some stuff. And one of the really interesting things was how he described his evolution of what he understands the UFO phenomenon to be. I was listening to it, I think, as it was happening, or it might have like just came out. They started talking about John Keel books, and I was just like, oh my God, finally. <laughs> it's a validation for all this reading I've been doing. <laughs> and yeah. Anyway, they were making really good points about it, and I know that if people listen to this podcast, they were probably pumped when they heard them bring up his books. They really endorsed a lot of his ideas. Yeah, they did. I find that, that really interesting. Yeah, it was interesting. It was also unsettling because like if you <laughs> right. read these books, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. You know what I'm saying? Like it's not a, even uh, close. I mean, that's kind of been Tom's uh, whole thing though for a while. There's a dark aspect to this, but there are some silver linings that will come with disclosure. Humanity will have some benefits from this, regardless of how negative it might seem in total. The thing that Tom says that stands out to me a lot is it really seems like it depends on what humanity does with this information. I'm trying to think of what else they talked about, specifically in regards to Keel. They were talking about the idea that there could be some thing, whatever, an intelligence, I don't know what you'd want to call it, but something like fucking with us. Yeah, a cosmic joke, I guess. Yeah. That, that's the main thing, he says. Because they were talking about that chapter in uh, Operation Trojan Horse which is like a very extensive chat. It might be the longest chapter in the book. It's like an archetype that occurs like all throughout time of the trickster. That itself is a very deep hole. They even talk about it at Skinwalker Ranch. They, they had a term for it. They called it a precognitive sentient phenomena. That was the term <laughs> I heard John Alexander use. It always seemed like something was one step ahead. Whatever this was, it's access to like what would happen in the future appeared to be like a step above what we could do or we could predict their equipment would break or they would run out of batteries randomly. I know those stories are all anecdotal. So take them with a grain of salt, but who they're coming from. This is a guy who was working firsthand on these projects and he was a colonel in the United States. That's the crossroads where I get to of like, okay, I know this sounds bizarre and people want to make fun of it at that point, but now can we like get down to the bottom? Is this guy telling people publicly lies? I think he's telling the truth for one. I don't think he has any reason to lie. The stories are very bizarre, but that's what makes this subject so difficult. John Keel even talks about this in Operation Trojan Horse. It's the silent contactee phenomenon. I think the majority of people that would be considered, quote, contactees, they don't even want to talk about their experience. So they just keep it private because of how absurd it is. And the public reaction to like saying what happened to you, it's a very like emotional thing to people. That was a very surprising aspect of learning about the abduction phenomenon, if you want to call it that. One of the things Tom said about Keel that I found funny was where he was talking about the airship mystery, how the aliens got really advanced since the 1890s. 
obviously were made by humans only a few decades later. And that plays into the whole idea that this technology is slightly ahead of us to guide our own technology. It's almost a joke. The other part he got into where he was riffing off Keel was what we talk about a lot, and that is the installation of beliefs into our worldview by the phenomena. And this is kind of obvious when you think about religions in general and fundamentalist and extreme religious beliefs that manifest you know, across the world in things like ISIS and things like Christian nationalism. These beliefs are taken to such an extreme that they completely envelop people's lives, basically. I think you mentioned that last week. And it can get to such a point where acts of violence and just the antithesis of what these religions are supposed to be promoting and turns into the opposite of what these leaders were trying to espouse or these myths or these you know, religious figures, gods even. These messages taken from the gods are kind of perverted and morphed into the extreme version. So I think that's a very interesting idea and ties into what he said about religions being a control mechanism for our free will. That was the part of the interview I found fascinating. And oh, um, yeah. Yeah, where Tom is essentially saying, and everyone kind of knows this from his interviews and stuff, but he he essentially has said many times before that religions were created to control us and factionalize us and see each other as the other. For whatever reason, keep us separated and keep us from coming together and realizing the full potential of the human race. And that idea he expands on when he brings in the concept of free will. He essentially posits that humans have free will I guess the quote was, we have free will, but religions were created to contain it. That idea I find fascinating because it's true. He also kind of expounds on it, and he doesn't really say it explicitly, but it seems as if, in his opinion, there's an element to this phenomenon that requires us to willingly give up our sovereignty. They can't take it from us for whatever reason. There has to be an element of free will. Again, like you were talking about last week, is surrender. We have to consciously and willingly give up whatever it is. And Tom sort of hints at like a soul. They're like jealous of the fact that we have a soul that's eternal. And, you know, these are more synthetic kind of life forms. And they want to somehow be able to use our containers. Or he said something about another energy source, I suppose. Yeah, there apparently has to be a willingness within us as a collective species to give up our humanity. I think that's where he gets into the whole thing with technology and our phones not looking up. Because the lore obviously says a lot of our current technology is based off of technology from UFO crashes, like the transistor. I mean, there's a timeline there that I don't really understand, but the idea is that these crashes were quote-unquote gifts, but they weren't really gifts because they put us on a trajectory to manufacture our own technologies to a point where we are completely consumed by them. And that consumption of these technologies has basically split us off into, uh, I guess, less human because you have the whole you know transhumanist thing, you got this fucking Neuralink coming out where people are moving like a mouse with their brain. That thing freaks me out. The whole idea of telepathy through Elon Musk's technology is quite terrifying to me, quite honestly. But uh, if we have a machine in our brain that's making thoughts or processing or keeping memory, uh, that 
definitely is not you know human biological hardware. That's uh, technological hardware. I suppose the idea is that these UFO crashes have ultimately put us on a trajectory to become transhuman. And perhaps that is the point where some of these synthetic beings can sort of take over. Yeah, there's an entry point because we're freely giving it up based on our our love and obsession with this technology that was manufactured based off of other more advanced technologies throughout decades that they kind of quote unquote gifted to us. I hope that made sense. <laughs> yeah, you did. So I think you I think you put that really well. It's it's essentially social engineering to contain us. I mean, it's to put us on a trajectory to the point where we are uh, willingly giving it up, even though we've kind of been guided in a certain direction. It's still our own choice to provide entry into whatever these things want from us. And he even used his mom as an example. Of, yeah, exactly. Uh, they just kept harping on belief systems and how belief systems have this relationship with free will and our behavior. If there's something out there influencing belief systems, then you can expect all sorts of bizarre results. I feel like this is from Mothman Prophecies, and I, I sent it to you after the last episode ended. But he talks about, this is John Keel, and this is what John Keel writes about UFO contactees. He says, Many UFO contactees also develop the glow of the super-religious who have seen the light, that inner radiance and outward placidity that are common traits among clergymen, nuns, and mystics. Many of the, quote, Jesus freaks of the 1960s also acquired this special look. When you carefully examine these people, you find they have surrendered their conscious voluntarily to an outside force and have, in a real sense, become total robots serving that force. Countless religious sects make this kind of surrender the central purpose of their ceremonies. They invite the spirit of God or the devil to invade their physical bodies. And when it occurs, and it does occur constantly on a large scale, they slip into ecstatic trances and babble in unknown tongues. This roboticizing process is universally regarded as the highest and most welcome of all religious experiences. From the frenetic dances of the whirling dervishes and, quote, holy rollers, the black Sabbath of witchcraft, to the monotonous brain-numbing chants of the oriental religions and the hymn singing of the Christian churches are variations on this theme. Some are consciously trying to attain Godhead, unity with the superspectrum, while others are practicing ancient traditions not consciously aware of the real purposes behind them. Have you ever seen videos of those evangelical, or I'm not even sure if they're evangelical, but just generally like these giant mega churches, and they have lines of people coming up to the altar, and these people are told all this stuff, like the preacher's going nuts, just like yelling at everyone in a very fucking preachy way, I guess. <laughs> but, um, oh, yeah. Yeah, and then they start like speaking in tongues. I always wonder what the fuck actually is happening and i hope they're making it up oh it, some undeniably are yeah i know that i know that, that are just, just like complete crooks yeah but, just uh, like anything else there's charlatans but i'm talking about like the churchgoers themselves and is their belief system just essentially causing them to do this subconsciously or is is it in between consciously and subconsciously where they're coming out with these exclamations of reportedly God speaking through them in this wild fucking thing? 
I don't know. It's really, I, I really get disturbed when I watch those mega churches doing this stuff and then people start talking in tongues up on stage and everyone's like super fucking pumped about it. And <laughs> it's just so bizarre. And uh, I wonder, obviously, like that kind of belief in what the preacher is saying, I just wonder how much of that is intentional where they're trying to kind of fake it till you make it, I guess. It's just interesting the mechanism of their belief system that plays into that whole thing playing out on stage. And it's it's just bizarre to watch. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of churches where it's common for people to speak in tongues. And people will laugh at that. I laugh at that. I'm not Christian. I'm not. But like, it is a thing. It's, it's a weird thing if you study uh, Catholicism and the concept of revelation. A holy person supposedly talks back and forth with God and gets information from God. That was something that Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens critiqued the hell out of. And they were like, how can you, this is a person. How can you say that this person is talking to God? The whole idea of surrender is built into that. You know, it's built into religion, praising someone a higher power, even Alcoholics Anonymous, which a lot of atheists even go to have this idea of giving yourself up to a higher power because you're, you can't control, you know, you're drinking, you don't have the self-control, so you need to give it over to something that is outside of you. It's weird how powerful that is, that it can make people stop drinking, you know, <laughs> and doing things that are just harmful to themselves and their family and their life. It's totally accepted. I think that has been sort of drilled into the human psyche over millennia by religion. And I think that plays into exactly what Tom was talking about. And the other part of it he mentioned was that religions basically dictate who you can and can't marry and spend your life with. And you have to marry someone of the same faith or you can't have sex until you're married. Really at the base of it with those kind of rules with you know who you can and can't have sex with, that. That's essentially affecting our genetics over time without having to go in and you know use CRISPR to edit it. If you make a power structure where people are only allowed to procreate with other certain people, it seems like it's free will, but it's really not. It's just something that's been put in place that over time has led to you know, people believing that that's just the right thing to do. I don't want to paraphrase them, but they were talking about how if you're forced to do something and you do something bad, how it doesn't affect you as much as when you're told to do something and then you choose to do something bad that you know is bad. They're talking about how our free will, the things that change parts of us and who we are, are like largely because of our choices. Yeah, I think they were talking about the idea where DNA can be affected by free will choice. I guess the idea is to rapidly evolve our DNA through controlled, contained free will choices. Yeah, one of the TTS talks is specifically about consciousness and DNA that has Lavenda in it. I recommend that if you want a thorough explanation of what we're talking about here. It, it does seem like DNA has these weird constraints. So I wonder what Jim Semivan and Tom DeLonge think is going to happen when all these millions of people go read John Keel books. Everybody would be so paranoid, even more paranoid than they already are. The sun is about to explode. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that. There was a picture on, uh, I think it was Science Alert. They had an article where they had two pictures of the sun, one from two years ago and one from just recently. Apparently, there was a giant solar flare, I think, two days ago. Yeah, it, it was massive. 
and it kind of freaked out the NASA satellites. It flashed like massively. It seems like something's going on. Potentially, we need some kind of groundbreaking technology to uh, deal with something that's coming. There's a book that had Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. The epilogue was written by Arthur C. Clarke. It was specifically about the sun or just our planet eventually becoming horrible and what humans might do. So this book is a 1970 book by the crew of the Apollo 11 moon landing. Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Buzz Aldrin in collaboration with Gene Farmer and Dora Jane Hamblin. Arthur C. Clarke wrote the epilogue which was called Beyond Apollo. This is an excerpt from Arthur C. Clarke's epilogue. It has been said that interstellar travel is not an engineering problem, but a biological one. Certainly, biological techniques, known or foreseeable, give a number of possible solutions. One is a multi-generation starship, a mobile, self-contained wordlet, which might cruise for centuries until the descendants of the original voyagers made planetfall in a new solar system. Another way of arriving at the same result would involve suspended animation or hibernation. If this proves to be impossible with human beings, then we might send frozen ova, which were automatically fertilized a couple of decades before the end of the voyage. The children thus born could be reared by robot nurses and in due course introduced to their distant heritage of human knowledge and history. If this particular idea sounds nicely calculated to bring a gleam of maniacal delight to the eyes of Dr. Strangelove, can anyone doubt that we would attempt it? If the sun was about to explode and we had all the time and the technology thus to make our race immortal, the galaxy is full of detonating stars. How many doomed races may have already tried such desperate experiments? As already remarked, our island universe, the Milky Way system, contains 100,000 million stars. Equally significant is the fact that it has existed for at least 5,000 million years. That is more than a million times the duration of human history. Over such expanses of time and space, anything that is technologically possible probably has been achieved not once, but over and over again. There may be innumerable cosmic arcs making their lumbering way between the stars. It is possible that even interstellar travel may not be particularly time-consuming, at least from the viewpoint of the travelers themselves. As is widely known, though imperfectly understood, Einstein's theory of relativity predicts that as velocities approach that of light, which is 186,000 miles a second or 670 million miles an hour, time itself appears to slow down. This prediction has been experimentally verified with high-speed atomic particles and has fascinating consequences for space travelers. It means, in theory at least, that journeys of any distance are possible during the span of a human life, and indeed in as short a period of time as may be desired, if there is enough power to give the necessary speed and the crew can withstand the acceleration involved. To give a concrete example, taken from Slavosky and Sagan's book, Intelligent Life in the Universe, one can imagine a spaceship setting out for the Andromeda galaxy at a constant acceleration of one gravity so that the crew would experience their normal weight. If this acceleration could be maintained, the crew would be 28 years older when the ship arrived at Andromeda. Now, this is very surprising because light takes about 2 million years to make the same journey, and nothing can exceed the speed of light. Yet no contradiction is involved. From the point of view of outside observers, the spaceship never quite attains the speed of light, and so the voyage lasts a full 2 million years. 
But to the travelers and all their clocks, since everything in the ship is equally affected, only 28 years would have elapsed. They would have no way of telling that anything peculiar had happened to them unless they turned around and went straight home. Then, 56 years older, they would land on Earth where 4 million years had passed. If anyone asks, how long did the voyage really take? The answer is that both figures are correct. It all depends on the observer. One day, this, quote, time dilation phenomenon may cause little more surprise than the fact that it can be noon in New York when it is 5 p.m. in London. That's what I thought of when you said <laughs> if <laughs> shit gets desperate and the sun is about to go out. So it's hard to know like what they know in the black world, especially when it can be used to basically destroy the world. And you know, this UFO technology, if it got in the wrong hands, would most likely be extremely disruptive. And you tie in religion and religious beliefs and these acts of violence that are committed in the name of God. And you add in some sort of zero-point energy weapon. I mean, that's basically it. Someone thinks they're saving all of humanity by releasing us to uh, out of our containers or whatever you want to call it. And it's also interesting to think about how involved Arthur C. Clarke was in certain aspects of just technology in general and the books he went on to write about this kind of stuff. He was um, the Royal Air Force. He was a radar specialist involved in like early warning radar systems. So this guy kind of knew what he, he was talking about. He was also the president of the British Interplanetary Society, basically during Roswell or right after. Yeah, this guy was involved. He was in the know. And I think it was interesting to see what he wrote based on that information. I wanted to revisit one thing Tom said about the relationship between free will and consciousness and physics. When you think about it, there's the many worlds interpretation of uh, quantum mechanics, where you know each choice basically opens up a new universe. So it's all probabilities, and based on your free will choice you make, it, it takes you in a, in a certain direction. And then obviously the ORC-OR theory of consciousness, where consciousness arises from quantum states in the microtubules. Obviously, free will is part of consciousness, and that might tie into quantum consciousness or the quantum DNA that they talk about in secret machines. The other really interesting one is the idea of determinism in classical physics, where you know all these equations usually look at physical reality as as deterministic with no room for free will. I think that might be what Tom means by free will having to do with fundamental physics because you have these two theories that you know we've been trying to unify forever. One is deterministic and the other is probabilistic. And it's interesting to think about in terms of consciousness and is an event horizon between two systems that fight over physical matter. Maybe consciousness, I guess, is the bridge between the two. That's, that's my interpretation of what he's trying to put out there. Whenever Tom does an interview, it's so rare and infrequent that I'm like... I pick apart everything he says. Yeah, everything. <laughs> In that little blurb I read of Arthur C. Clarke... He talks about this idea of putting ova in a craft and then having robots raise them and then just continuing human history by using the robot-trained humans... I'm curious if there was some sort of breakthrough in technology, or maybe there wasn't, but maybe a group of people understood the magnitude 
of what it could present to the species and the destructive force it involved, potentially. Imagine what if that group decided if we ever acquire the technology to travel like beyond the stars or some sort of like quantum tunneling or some warp drive to really, really travel without the constraints of distance and physics as we know it right now. Imagine if we had that, I bet you, even if we didn't have it, I think that groups in really, really top secret groups of, or uh, positions of authority, I would wager that there is some sort of plan in place to do something like that with that technology once it's achieved, because it has to be of the utmost urgency. Yeah. If you're talking about the species itself of human beings, which is something that all these billionaires seem to be very interested in, if you haven't noticed, <laughs> like, uh, it seems like uh, the continuation of the species is like a pretty, it seems to be everything if we're talking about what human beings are and I don't know. Yeah, but at the same time, Elon says he wants to go to Mars to continue humanity. At the same time, he's sticking contraptions into people's heads and uh, basically turning us into robots. So it's hard to tell uh, what a lot of these guys are thinking. There's like this weird designer baby article I read of like a year ago or so. Silicon Valley big wigs are trying to basically use CRISPR to make the perfect children. And I think there's a lot of that. Rich people thinking that they're genetically superior and they want to basically seed their own. I mean, you saw it with Jeffrey Epstein, where he wanted to essentially seed the human race with his genes. I think the idea where we would go to different planets and stuff where people could essentially be their own god. They use their own DNA to seed life on another planet. I think there's a really weird God complex. And now with interstellar travel mixed in, it's kind of fucking, it's so creepy. But uh, there's, there's a weird technocratic vibe to a lot of these billionaires who got to where they are, not based on their humanity, but based on propping themselves off other people, you know, to make it to the top. They're obviously not donating shit to anything. They have all their fucking money in shell companies all across the world. So it's hard to believe that any of these guys, and they're all guys, have any sort of consideration for people like us. But I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're really, really cool and uh, will bring all of us along for the ride. But I don't know if you've seen Don't Look Up. But uh, yeah, the end of that movie, I think, is pretty much how it's going to play out. Where all the billionaires bounce when the asteroid hits the Earth and then um, you know, hopefully they get eaten by uh, aliens on another planet. Yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. But yeah, I don't know if you wanted to get into paperclip at all. or Yeah. All right, let's do it. Yeah, I absolutely would. See, this is something that's really frustrated me for a while now investigating this topic. I've noticed that the groups of people who want to critique Tom DeLong haven't read Secret Machines at all. What's in Secret Machines? I, I just have to say it up front, if it's true, the fact that it's included in these books historically, I think is going to reflect very positively on Tom DeLong. Paperclip, Especially mean, right? when, yeah, when it comes to World War II and Germany, how things unfolded, people are going to chuckle when they hear it, but how things unfolded in Antarctica and Argentina, it didn't sound like some sci-fi movie at all when I read Secret Machines. It sounded like real battles and real lives being lost. 
real historical figures. He names names in yeah. those books. Some of these guys are guys that we, if you Google them, they're reportedly dead in 1945. We're learning more and more every year about this particular topic concerning paperclip. For those unfamiliar, we will explain what that is. I just wanted to read a Lavenda quote. Okay. The thing about paperclip and just, you know, World War II in general is the involvement of Wall Street in financing Hitler's regime and the American money that went into these corporations that became the Nazi war machine. It would not have happened without certain people within our country, at least a lot of the people in power in the elite and on Wall Street. This is from Sinister Forces. There had to have been a level at which the U.S. government's leaders identified with the Nazis or at least admired them. There had to have been a point at which the crimes of the Holocaust were considered a minor problem, a kind of public relations nuisance that was overshadowed by the glamour of the perfectly run superstate of the Third Reich. There must have been an understanding that the ideologies of America and Nazi Germany were more alike than the ideologies of America and the Soviet Union. This is because there's just no other way to interpret what took place at the very end of the war. Morally, what transpired can only be considered a war crime itself. Lavenda also spoke to that recently in relation to newer technology with AI and how we haven't evolved spiritually enough as a species to effectively use it in a way that would be productive and not destroy ourselves. You sent me some documents over the past few days you wanted to talk about. So if you wanted to just review briefly what Paperclip was, maybe touch on the stuff that people haven't really heard about before. To explain Paperclip, people have to understand a lot of stuff about this pocket of time in history, specifically where things began to get extraordinarily classified. Historically, the amount of classification after 1945 and the end of World War II is insane because a lot of things started happening and they were specifically really worried about Russia and the threat of Russia, and the threat of them as an emerging superpower, and everyone knows that. Basically, after World War II, the United States saw, or parts of the United States, thought that it would be advantageous for the United States to bring in some of these former German Nazis, and to give them immunity, and to have them participate in our military programs, and I know a lot of these guys, people think immediately of NASA, but people have to remember NASA wasn't created until the 60s or so. This pocket of time, all these guys were coming into, I think our Air Force was a major area where they came in. Um, I know major aerospace industries, guys like Walter Dornberger, who we'll talk about, I'm sure in this podcast, who was Warner Von Braun's boss at Pinamunda. These guys were rocket scientists that were highly sought after. And they didn't necessarily all go work for NASA, although guys like Dornberger went to work for Bell Aerospace. That was like a precursor to AT&T, if I'm correct. They were very heavy hitters when it came to our military industrial complex and a lot of these companies involved. And so after World War II, I would say the list is at least over a thousand people. I've heard people speculate that it's tens of thousands. I don't think the number is that high, but I know that the number was alarmingly high enough. If you read this book, Secret Agenda by Linda Hunt, it sounds like the level of war criminal they were like turning a blind eye to was pretty unbelievable. 
And a lot of these guys were coming into our country and driving expensive Mercedes cars and being allowed to travel wherever they want and really face no repercussions for participating in some of the stuff that they did in the SS or with Nazi Germany. Something Peter Lavenda points out about the SS is that it was truly, it was a cult. He, he says like the Nazi party overall was a cult. And he makes the point that even Christianity, for example, started as an underground cult. For 300 years, it was illegal to be a Christian until Constantine came along. And then finally, Christianity was like part of the Pax Decorum of Rome. And it was legal to be a Christian. But the problem is that people are so short-minded, they don't think, they think that after World War II, because Germany's government and military lost the war, that the Nazi party just ended. Something these researchers point out is that just because they may have lost that war doesn't mean that that like infrastructure just went away. It was very much all over Europe and South America and the United States, all over Asia as well. Like I know you were on the book Gold Warriors. It's just very expansive after World War II. Joseph Farrell talks about it and he, he says essentially the, you know, the Thule Society helped midwife the Nazi party into existence. So at its very genesis, this was a secret society. So when the secret society is the origin, you know, at least the rise of the Nazi party, that infrastructure is already in place behind the scenes. So, you know, it's not like once that party's gone, the, the secret society goes away. It's still back there in the shadows. So I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. Something that interests me about Tom DeLong is they talk about Operation High Jump in their book, Secret Machines Chasing Shadows. It was the novel he wrote with A.J. Hartley, the first one. And that's the operation where Rear Admiral Byrd, they sent like a naval fleet to Antarctica for what they were calling research. Yeah, it was it was scientific research. That's I, I know that, <laughs> but I mean, like for anybody who tries to like research high jump specifically, this little mission where the United States went down to Antarctica in 1946, I think it went into early 1947. And apparently we had lost a couple of men on this trip. If this was a, a research trip, what it included was very bizarre because it seemed like they were going in there for a fight. If you look at like what was brought with them to high jump. If you, for instance, try to like research Operation High Jump and like what happened there and see footage of it, it's very sparse what you'll ever be able to find. And the reason for that, as Peter Lavenda pointed out, was that so much of that, if not all of it, is still classified to this day. We as a public, for whatever reason, don't get to know what happened in Antarctica. So then that creates a vacuum and you see these baloney examples come up, like the diary. I'm sure you've heard of this, where yep. it's like purportedly a diary of Richard Byrd, and he goes to the inner earth. It was complete fiction. But yet, if you Google Admiral Byrd's diary, you're not going to find any shortage of crazy websites that are going to post it and repeat it and present it as fact. But for some reason, it's very, very secret. So in Chasing Shadows, Tom DeLong talks about high jump and he says what happened, who was there and gives you kind of a peek behind the curtain. That was one of the biggest, most extreme parts of that book, in my opinion, because of how secret that mission was. And people just kind of like blew past it. And anyway, in Secret Machines, it, it says that 
the United States had a skirmish down here and found this like German, I don't even know if I would call it a colony, but a little German like headquarters. Outpost, where, probably. Outpost, yeah, that would be a good term for it. And they found these disc craft that were sizzling around the sky and flying in ways that they couldn't really describe, but they still appeared to be using guns and still appeared to be terrestrial. There was nothing like when they describe it, they say that we were taking them on with, I think, Mustangs, like our planes, and that eventually we took out a disc and then we apprehended the leaders of this group. And one of the leaders of this group is this guy named Hans Kammler. So Hans Kammler was an SS general, and he was responsible for secret Nazi projects. In this biography, it says he oversaw the construction of various Nazi concentration camps before being put in charge of the V-2 rocket and emergency fighter programs towards the end of World War II. Kammler disappeared in May 1945 during the final days of the war. There has been much conjecture regarding his fate. So part of that conjecture is that Tom DeLong is saying he lived and went to Antarctica and for some reason, they had this exotic technology down there. I think that alone makes secret machines worthy of being a New York Times bestseller. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that simple, if that is true, well, hats off for being brave enough to point that out because now that gives me a clear picture of what exactly was going on and is like a super important reason why people should pay attention to what Tom DeLong is saying is because I am sure that as a, especially someone with a name recognition and celebrity, that that's not a comfortable thing to bring up. But if that's something that he knows or has been told, I think that it's worth taking a look at. Why don't we thoroughly understand our history? Yeah, maybe that is one of the parts that interested some of the people who called in Jim Summyvan and they're like, hey, read his book. He might have people leaking him some fucking classified shit. So it's always fun to speculate on what parts of secret machines might have triggered that. But yeah, keep going. Sorry. This is what it says in this document. And I'm going to explain who this guy is. So it says Martin Borman, New York T1, who has furnished reliable information in the past, recently arrived that during the past summer, 1973, while traveling in Europe, she met a man who furnished the following information concerning Martin Bormann. He said that Martin Bormann, formerly a high-ranking Nazi official in Germany, is alive and living in Zurich, Switzerland, under the name of Dr. Husner. In the last days of World War II, Bormann obtained a large amount of looted art objects and German dollar bonds from Nazi custody and had this shipped to Switzerland. Bormann then obtained a diplomatic passport from the Vatican using the identity of a dead Swiss national. He then proceeded to South America to join other Nazis in hiding there. Eight months later, he traveled to Switzerland where he joined other Nazi fugitives, such as one, Heinrich Mueller, chief of the Gestapo, two, Walter Schellenberg, chief of the Abwehr, three, Otto Skorzeny, who kidnapped Mussolini, four, Mrs. Otto Skorzeny, so his wife, and five, Major Hans Wagner, Abwehr chief in Bucharest. I can talk about a couple of these people. I have to point out who Martin Bormann is. So Martin Bormann, if you read Peter Lavenda's Unholy Alliance, which I highly recommend, it explains who Martin Bormann is. It says, and what about Martin Bormann? Did he really die in Berlin in the final days as has been reported? Ironically enough, as I write these lines in the early days of 1994, 
new evidence has come to light to suggest that the much maligned Ladislas Farago may have been correct after all. Hundreds of files newly released by the Argentine government of President Menem show that many more Nazis managed to flee to South America than had ever been previously imagined, not even in the wildest dreams of veteran Nazi hunters. Included in these records, which consist of official files of the Argentine police and intelligence services, are the faintest traces of an El Gran Fugitivo. As the files reveal, the American ambassador to Argentina had come into possession of intelligence that nearly confirmed Farago's claim that Borman had managed to make his way into Italy through a series of safe houses and then shipped out to Buenos Aires. Due to a typographical error in transcription, the province to which Borman had subsequently fled was incorrectly identified and the Argentine officials at that time, working for the administration of pro-Nazi and pro-fascist Juan Perón, shrugged their shoulders and replied that they could not help the American authorities as no such town existed in that province. These newly released reports will hopefully help vindicate the late Mr. Farago's effort to track down the most famous Nazi war criminal of all and rehabilitate his most controversial work, Aftermath. Martin Bormann, for those who don't understand, was the private secretary to Hitler, and he was the head of the Nazi party chancellery. He was like the second in command. The fact of the matter is, is like there's growing amount of evidence and testimony that this man escaped and lived a pretty full life after World War II. Joseph Farrell's book, uh, Roswell and the Reich, he says that in mid-1948, the FBI gains reports of Borman's survival in Bariloche, Argentina, and President Truman, at the request of Supreme Court Justice Jackson, authorizes Hoover's FBI to investigate the matter. As noted in this book, this is peculiar since President Truman had signed the 1947 National Security Act into law, which gave foreign intelligence operations to the jurisdiction of the CIA, not the FBI. However, if Truman suspected that the CIA had already been compromised by Nazis, the choice of the FBI makes perfect sense. To give background on that, if this is 1948 where they the, our intelligence agencies find out about Borman's survival or are tipped off to the idea that maybe there's some little cell growing in South America, which it appeared to be, for those who don't understand, 1947 was the year the CIA was created, the National Security Act was passed. The Air Force was separated from the Army. According to Joseph Farrell, in July to September of 1947, a strange and exotic craft crashes and is recovered by the U.S. military personnel near Roswell, New Mexico. According to the so-called Cooper Cantwell Magic 12 documents, a full U.S. Air Force investigation occurs, which includes the resident Nazi paperclip rocket scientists in New Mexico. Publicly, the story is put out that the U.S. has received a, quote, flying saucer on the orders of the base commander, Colonel William Blanchard, later four-star General Blanchard. This story is refuted days later by other U.S. Air Force personnel, including General Roger Ramey. As I argue in the SS Brotherhood of the Bell and in my Reich of the Black Sun, however, all of the internal evidence of these documents argues that the recovered technology, while exotic, was not exotic enough to be extraterrestrial. As outlined in those books, the technological descriptions of the craft, if they are to be believed, point clearly and inexorably to similar developments in Nazi Germany. Thus, the panic becomes understandable. 
for if something Nazi was able to enter American airspace over our most sensitive military installations in 1947 with impunity, then that meant that someone somewhere in the world was continuing an independent development of those wartime Nazi secret projects. So Joseph Farrell talks pretty extensively about the fact that Truman created these different intelligence apparatus when he hears of Borman's survival or at the request of this Supreme Court justice authorizes Hoover's FBI to investigate. The FBI shouldn't be doing things outside of the country anymore, as he points out. The foreign intelligence operation should be the jurisdiction of the CIA. Farrell's kind of positing that, uh, you know, the CIA might have been compromised by Nazis. I think that's his main point in saying that stuff. That, that's some wild shit. Okay. So this is an important part of this story, even though for years I had always like overlooked it. The History Channel's site says about Maury Island. As the story goes, Harold Dahl was on a conservation mission on the Puget Sound near the eastern shore of Washington's Maury Island, gathering logs, when he saw six donut-shaped obstacles hovering about half a mile above his boat. Before long, one of them fell nearly 1,500 feet followed by raining metallic debris, some of which hit Dahl's son, Charles, on his arm, as well as the family's dog, who didn't survive the ordeal. Dahl was able to take some pictures of the aircraft with his camera, which he later showed to his supervisor, Fred Chrisman. A skeptical Chrisman went back to the scene to look for himself and saw a strange aircraft with his own eyes. The following morning, Dahl was visited by a man in a black suit. They end up at a local diner, where the man was able to recount with extraordinary detail what Dahl had experienced. What I have said is proof to you that I know a great deal more about this experience of yours than you will want to believe, end quote. Dahl was told not to speak of the incident. If he did, bad things would happen. And this quote could be found in the 1956 book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers by Gray Barker. Keep in mind, that incident with Harold Dahl and his son being hurt and the dog dying, this mm -hmm. is in June 21st, 1947. This is a very major year for UFOs in general. This is also like three days before the Kenneth Arnold sighting. The Kenneth Arnold sighting was in a similar area. It was also in Washington. It was in Mount Rainier, which is part of the Cascades. This is what Peter Lavenda has said in the past about the Maury Island affair. He says, there was a guy sitting down in his boat in Puget Sound, and he claimed that, quote, a UFO had exploded and that parts of it were raining down on him and killed his dog. He took parts of the shrapnel to his boss, who was Fred Chrisman, and Fred Chrisman notified the authorities. The Army Air Force sent a couple of investigators to take a look at the debris. They picked up the debris in a box and took it with them on their plane back to their base. The plane exploded in midair and the airmen were killed and the box of debris disappeared along with them. What? So then... <laughs> what? That's fucking nuts. Yeah, and so he, he says that this is like one of the... This is the start of like what people call the men in black because... Yeah. As I said, they were like meant by men in black suits. And then we have the idea of a crash retrieval or a, a piece of saucer. I know there's countless stories of people who say they have a piece of something being visited and having it confiscated from them. This is a part where I have to bring my man John Keel into it. John Keel was friends with uh, Gray Barker. On his website, you can see correspondence he had with Gray Barker 
where he's talking about this man, Fred Chrisman, who is popping up in Washington in 1947, but also for those familiar with the Kennedy assassination investigations, that Fred Chrisman's name begins popping up all over the place in the 60s again when it comes to Kennedy. This is something that John Keel said. Dear Gray, the Fred Chrisman summoned to testify in the Clay Shaw trial was the same Fred Chrisman who was involved in the Tacoma Mari Island affair and the same Chrisman who claimed to have shot his way out of a cave in Burma, receiving a hole the size of a dime in his arm from a ray gun wielded, he said, by the Dero. His exact words to me, quote, for God's sake, drop the shaver cave stories. You don't know what you're dealing with here. He is the same Fred Chrisman who offered to go into a cave in Texas and bring out some of the ancient machinery if I would send him $500 expense money. It was not Clay Shaw who was ruined financially, personally, and physically. It was Jim Garrison who was ruined. He was, as I told him in a letter, subjected to IRS audit, finally won the case in court, but at tremendous financial cost, which was the IRS goal in the first place. He was also libeled, framed in a drug ring, and hounded from office, finally losing out in a re-election run. I have Garrison's letter stating that they were one and the same man. I also have my answer to Garrison, predicting that Chrisman could not be subpoenaed, that he was CIA and tremendously powerful. There is a definite link between flying saucers, the Schaefer mystery, the Kennedy assassinations, Watergate, and Fred Chrisman. There is one common denominator for everything that is happening in the world today. That common denominator is right where Shaver said it was, no matter whether you prefer caverns or the lower astral or another dimension. I don't know where, where to even pick up because there's a, <laughs> a lot there. So maybe we'll do a part two next week. Let's do yeah. part one and part two because I got a lot of stuff to talk about still. So Yeah, dude, that's perfect. That'll be it for uh, part one of this. We're going to continue this one next week. I think the idea of the Nazi party being ushered in by a secret society, I want to touch on that a little bit more and how that could relate to its influence uh, up to present day on certain aspects of geopolitical issues, especially when it comes to transnational corporations and how they affect the International finance aspect of this, I think, is really important. I want to dig into that a little more. But uh, yeah, that should be it for this part one. And we'll see you next week for part two on Operation Paperclip. And uh, yeah, see you then. Thanks, guys. 